Hello, and welcome to the 7Sage Podcast. I'm Joey Ping, and on today's episode, 7Sage tutor Scott is back to discuss another five logical reasoning questions with me, at this time from PrepTest 91. Now, if you haven't taken PrepTest 91 yet, I strongly advise that you do not listen to this episode. Scott and I want to help you improve LR, and if we spoil this prep test for you, that would be the opposite of helping you. So again, please save this episode until you've taken prep test 91 and have had a chance to blind review it yourself. Now, assuming all that is true, let's get ready to nerd out on some logical reasoning. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you back here. Last time, we, you and I talked about five questions from one of the most recent prep tests, and we picked kind of harder questions, and we discussed a lot of the more advanced concepts. After that episode, we talked off the air about how we thought it might be helpful to do this again, but pick questions on the medium to easier end of the spectrum. Not like super easy, but medium to easier end of the spectrum so that we can maybe focus a bit more on fundamentals. That's what we are doing here today. We picked five questions from Prep Test 91, Section 2, and we're going to talk about that. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. And I think this is really an important thing for students in a broad category of score ranges, because your ability to not only get these questions right, but to get them right efficiently and without taking an abundance of time really is the difference between you not only getting up into the 160s, but particularly as you progress beyond that. These have to become so internalized that they're almost automatic, because if you're spending minutes addressing any of these questions, you're simply not going to have the time to deal with the really curve breaker questions near the end of the exam. So these are learning to be efficient, learning to do these naturally is just such an important skill going into the LR section. Could not agree more. So with that, let's dive into our first question. And again, all five questions will be from Prep Test 91, Section 2, Logical Reasoning. The first question is question three, and we'll follow the same format that we did last time, which is I'll read the question stem, I'll read the stimulus, we'll discuss it, we'll analyze it, and we'll definitely talk about the right answer, but we won't talk about all the wrong answers. Maybe, you know, we'll pick one or two of the wrong answers to highlight. Question three is a main point question. It says, which one of the following most accurately expresses the conclusion drawn in the columnist's argument? And here comes the newspaper columnist's argument. What caused the current recession is hotly debated. It is a mistake, however, to assume that answering this question is essential to improving the economy. Corrective lenses, after all, were an effective treatment for myopia long before the cause was known to be genetic. All right, Scott, so first reactions. Yeah, so immediately what I'm going to do with the stimulus is start to break it down and identify what each sentence of the stimulus is actually doing and how it kind of builds together into an argument. The first thing we have in the first sentence, what caused the current recession is a hotly debated question. This doesn't actually you know, support either of the other statements in the argument, neither of those statements support it. So this is just context that they provided to us. And if we weren't already sure of that, the word however near the beginning, though not quite at the beginning because they wanted to make it a little bit trickier, in sentence two should definitely communicate. So if you have a however, you're transitioning from something to something else. In this case, it's transitioning from context into the actual core argument. So the second sentence, it is a mistake, however, to assume that answering this question is essential to approving the economy. Already, you should be thinking, okay, this sounds like a conclusion, but let's go ahead and keep reading. Corrective lenses after all. Okay, well, after all is just a perfect indicator word for a premises. We know just from reading that, that the third sentence, what comes after after all, has got to be our premise. And then that leaves 
reduce sentence two as being our conclusion. But the conclusion is a little bit tricky because it contains some nasty referential phrasing. So it is a mistake to assume that answering this question is essential to approving the economy. What question is that? If we just leave it in that state, it's ultimately not going to help us answer this question. So we have to go back and find the question. And that's ultimately contained in the first sentence in the context. The question is, what caused the current recession? We need to take that and push it into the conclusion. And if we do that, we get, it is a mistake to assume that answering the question of what caused the recession is essential to improving the economy, which just rolls trippingly off the tongue. <laughs> uh, so I would encourage you, once you've done that, to rephrase it into something that, that you can actually contain in one breath, and it'll come out to something, you know, my version of it is, knowing the cause of the economic recession is not necessary to improve the economy. Yeah. Or even if you want to abstract it a bit more, knowing the cause of the problem isn't required to solving the problem. No, exactly right. By the way, if that's something that you struggle with, and a significant number of our clients do struggle with that, that is something that you absolutely should go through in practice. A drill that I give to my clients who struggle with this kind of referential phrasing, which is so common in LR, go through an entire LR section that you've thoroughly reviewed, and then replace the referential language with the thing that it's actually pointing to. I think that's a good drill because one, it just gets you in the habit. And really, to be successful on the LR section, you want to be able to do that more or less automatically. You have to diagram it out every time. You're simply not going to have time to address the real problem that the question is trying to identify. Yeah, I could not agree more. This is something I used to assign my students as well. Like if I ever notice someone having this issue, I'm just, listen, just stop. We've identified one issue. Let's isolate this issue and work just on this issue. Forget everything else. We got to get this down because this is the bread and butter of reading comprehension. I mean that I'm using that term broadly, not just the RRC section, although actually it it super applies to that section as well, as well as LR. But if this is a weakness for you, you got to be real honest with yourself about this and it's okay. You identify the weakness, you work on it. You're going to improve. You're just going to improve if you put in the work. It is a very clear cut exercise. Just like Scott said, take a section, forget everything else. Just go through the stimulus and circle every single referential phrase and point it to the thing that it's pointing to. And then that's it. You do this maybe today, you wait a day, you do it again two days later, maybe again next week. Over time, you're going to start realizing, hey, I don't need to do this anymore. I just It's just automatic now. That's perfect. That's what we're aiming for because there are a lot of other issues we need to work on as well. So if you have the opportunity to isolate and fix one thing, grab it, right? Fix it. Let's keep going here. So now that we have identified the conclusion, you know, our job really is to go through these answer choices and to find the answer that conforms to that conclusion. Yeah, absolutely. That's efficiency right there. Notice how some of you might be thinking, wait, the premise talks about corrective lenses. The conclusion is about the economy. What? Okay, yes, this is an argument by analogy, but let's table that discussion. I want to come back to this discussion later. Right now, let's illustrate what the efficient approach is. Reading through here, there are two of these answer choices that jump out to me as possibilities. Pretty much all of the others don't come anywhere close to the phrasing of that conclusion that knowing the cause of the problem, namely the economic recession, is not necessary to improving it. And those two choices are B and D. And B, which ultimately is our wrong answer, is a little bit tricky because honestly, the wording that they've chosen is superficially similar to the version of the conclusion that we've generated. So I said that my version was knowing the cause of the economic recession is not necessary to improve the economy. But this says knowing the cause of the current recession would not necessarily enable people to find a solution to it. And again, that's that's similar-ish. It's so close. It's, it's very, very close to what we said. Yeah. It has all the right words, but it doesn't have the right 
meaning. It doesn't say the same thing. It's one of those questions that really does punish you if, again, you're just looking for superficial similarity rather than really understanding what do these means and how does the grammar suggest a relationship between these concepts. Yeah, flesh that out, though. I really do feel like this is a real difficulty that people have, even if someone looked at the stimulus like, oh, this is a no-brainer. Main conclusion, identified it. It's the second sentence. And I filled in the referential phrase. I know what the main conclusion is. We don't need to figure out what caused the recession in order to fix it, to improve the economy. Isn't that what B says? Knowing the cause wouldn't necessarily enable people to find a solution? No, because essentially what the conclusion says is that knowing the cause of the economic recession is not necessary to improving the economy. Yeah. So in other words, even if I'm ignorant about the cause, the possibility of improving the economy is still open to me. That's what the conclusion is saying. Okay. And while similar, that's not what B is saying. B is saying knowing the cause, right? Like recall the conclusion saying you are in a state of ignorance about the cause. Being in a state of ignorance about cause doesn't preclude you from fixing the economy. B is very much saying something different. B is saying, you know the cause of the recession, but knowing the cause doesn't necessarily get you to fix it, right? Like one thing is not knowing the cause, I I can still find a solution. B is saying, I know the cause, I can't necessarily find the solution. You see how they're not the same thing? They're just not the same thing, even though they sound similar. The thing that is the same is D. One need not ascertain the cause in order to improve the economy. One need not ascertain the cause of the current recession in order to improve. You can be ignorant about the cause of the current recession, but improving the economy, the solution, in other words, is still open to you. So super, super tricky. This, this is why I think that the target time on analytics, I was surprised to see as a minute and two seconds, but I guess I shouldn't be that surprised because typically for main conclusion questions, when the first five questions of LR, these target times, by the way, are based on super high scores. I, I forget the exact parameters that we set for analytics, but it's something like you miss zero on this section or you miss one or you miss probably max two. So we're talking about like 99% scores and the target time is a minute and two seconds. Like what? On a main conclusion question, question three, a minute and two seconds, it should be something like 35 seconds, 45 seconds for the target time. But I think it is because even the high scorers have to do a double take on B versus D, right? I feel like some of the high scorers probably even made a overconfidence error when they saw B. There's like B is right and then just didn't pay attention to the rest of it. Maybe didn't even read the rest of the answers and moved on. And man, that's devastating. No, and this is a masterclass in how the test writers make even a relatively simple question type, like a main conclusion question, into something that's actually quite challenging. Namely, because one, B is a tricky answer, and then you placed it before the answer. So early in the test, this is number three. We always tell our students, you need to be blowing through those first 15. It's really tempting to pick that and just say, okay, yeah, B looks superficially right. It's pretty close to what I had in my head. I'm already moved on to, to four, even five before the people who got the answer right have read down to D and really wrestled with which one's the right one. Yeah. So I think the solution is no matter how confident you are, like you think it's B, still give a glance at the others. Look it over. Or if you don't look it over, you got to circle this. You got to circle question three, flag it, you know, in the, in the digital tester. Flag it to signal to yourself that while you moved on and you're pretty confident, it is true that you actually just did not look at C, D, and E. And so if you have time, maybe come back to it. But some technique where you either glance at it or something to mitigate the risk of that false confidence. And I think it's also a good illustration where slowing down just a little bit ultimately radically improves your accuracy and helps you to identify these sorts of things. Because if you're really reading and reading deeply and reading actively, you should read B and realize that, wait, this isn't the same. Yeah, you know, And you yeah. might not be able to articulate exactly, okay, well, here are the exact problems or the specific thing that they're targeting here. But you get that, wait, that doesn't mean exactly the same thing. I'm not comfortable with it. Even if it sounds similar, you probably haven't crossed it out. 
And I'm pretty sure I immediately, when I went through this one, I crossed out A, I crossed out C, B, I left uncrossed, and then I read D and I was like, ah, yeah, D is what I was looking for. It doesn't look like what I was looking for. But you know, again, that active reading and really making sure you are going slow enough that you understand the concepts, even though you're trying to go fast on these questions. That's the difference between someone who's able to score deep into the 170s and the lower score brackets. Absolutely. That covers the efficiency approach, which is what we really wanted to stress with this question. But any opportunity you get to review a question, to review the recurring logical concepts that are being tested, I think you should take that opportunity. So let's, Scott, you and I do that here. And I identify two things I want to review about this, which is one is that this is an argument by analogy. And that's one of the most common. It's not majority, but you know, the majority of the reasoning modes on LR is causal reasoning and formal reasoning. But reasoning by analogy is very commonly recurring. So that's one thing I want to talk about. And the other, of course, is actually causal reasoning, because there is a causal principle that this argument invokes, that this argument presupposes, but doesn't actually say. So first about the reasoning by analogies, how is this an argument by analogy? How do you, how do you recognize that? Ultimately, the reason we know it's an argument and analogy, you should feel it kind of as you're reading through this. Okay, we're talking about the economy in our conclusion in sentence two, and then suddenly we get to corrective lenses. And <laughs> yeah. if you're actively reading at this point, there should be a, a big question mark raising over your head. Wait, why are we talking about contact lenses or glasses at this point? What's happening here? And as you read on, you realize that, okay, well, so corrective lenses were an effective treatment for myopia long before the cause was known to be genetic. So what they're doing there, even though, okay, yes, not everything that is is true of corrective eyewear is true of the larger economy. Nonetheless, this illustrates a principle that is common to both, that knowing the cause of something is not necessary to be able to provide a solution for it. And in fact, for hundreds of years, we have been able to grind glass into shapes that we can wear on our face that let people be able to see. And long before we had any understanding of the underlying genetics that caused eyes to be bad. Yes. And you and I are both beneficiaries of this. I'm wearing contact lenses and you're wearing glasses and we're, we're both very happy for this. And had we been born 200 years ago, I wouldn't have contact lenses, but glasses would have still been available. And what you, even though we didn't know back then what the actual cause was, and I love how you just tied together both of these points. You know, I, I mentioned a reasoning by analogy. I mentioned this causal principle. See, all arguments by analogy are strong or weak to the extent to which the, the things that they're talking about that are actually dissimilar, the extent to which they are related to each other, the extent to which they have certain structures that map onto one another. And then the question is, wait, how do they map onto each other, right? And in what ways are corrective lenses related to economy, right? Corrective lenses have a relationship to myopia, of course. What caused the recession has a relationship to how to improve the economy, of course, right? But what do those things have to do with each other? And there is where the causal principle gets invoked. And that's what you were saying, Scott, about how, listen, you identify causes you see a problem. You want to fix the problem. Whether the problem is a recession, economic problem, or the problem is myopia, nearsightedness, that's the problem phenomenon. You can think, you can generalize it as that's the effect phenomenon. We want to solve this problem. We want to change this phenomenon. How do you do it? Well, naturally, you might think, well, hey, let's identify the cause. If we're going to figure out what the cause is, then we can fix the cause. And then, of course, if truly you've identified the right cause, you would expect the effect to change as well. So what is the cause of a recession? Well, actually, we don't know, right? That's what's being hotly debated. What is the cause of 
myopia. Well, now we know, but back then we didn't know. So then the author invokes this general principle. It's like, yes, you, that is one way to solve a problem, but don't think that's the only way because there may be other ways to solve a problem, even if you're ignorant of the cause. See, look, back 200 years ago, we didn't know that the cause of myopia was genetics, but we were still able to come up with corrective lenses to solve that problem. So today, even though we don't know what the cause of recession is, we may still be able to solve it. There you have that fleshed out version of the argument by analogy, along with the causal principle that's invoked. Absolutely. All of that is overkill for this question. It's a main point question. <laughs> if you're thinking that much about question three, you unfortunately <laughs> are not going to finish the LR section. I'm very sorry. If you are thinking this much, call me. <laughs> or call Scott, actually. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we can yeah. use you. We can use you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it's still nonetheless super helpful to go through this because the stimulus for question three got hooked up to a main point question stem along with main point answer choices. But, you know, they really didn't have to. They could have hooked up the stimulus in question three to a far harder problem. For example, why couldn't they have asked us what principle was being invoked? That would turn up the dial on the difficulty of this question by a lot. So you, you got to think about this stuff. Yeah. And I also find that people's ability to improve in LR is often related to their curiosity and their desire to understand these things. Indulge that curiosity and develop it if you don't already have it. Because if you can really get in touch with your inner logic nerd, you're really going to have an easier and more enjoyable time studying logical reasoning. I think there's nothing more pleasurable than having things make sense. Having that head-scratching moment of, I just don't understand it, versus like having a sense of clarity, of like, oh, yeah, this fits in the framework of causal logic. This question isn't some anomaly. It is just something that will be predicted if this were my view, if this were my theoretical frame of how I understand arguments via causation or arguments via analogy. That's like, obviously, a logic nerd. It's what I live and breathe. But anyway, I think maybe we should move on from this question. Scott, we covered the most attractive wrong answer B and the correct answer D. Let's look at the next question. All right. Next question we're going to do is question six. This is a resolve, reconcile, explain question. And the question stem here says, which and following true most helps to explain why pollution levels in Crystal Bay increase after a heavy rainfall. So RRE questions, resolve, reconcile, explain questions, they all tend to fit this pattern of the stimulus containing some phenomenon, right? And the phenomenon can be simple, it can be complex, it can be like a long story with, you know, six discrete facts. I'm exaggerating. I don't think it's ever that many. But like, it can be simple, it can be complex, we can have a lot of facts, not too many facts. And our task is always to just find an answer choice that makes sense of what's going on. Something in there is confusing, perplexing, something in there you get a sense doesn't quite add up, there's tension or something, and then the correct answer choice comes up with a hypothesis or an explanation. We, we call it an explanation because the question then tells us to take all the answers to be true. So if you know a hypothesis is true, then it becomes, it gets promoted to an explanation. So we're trying to find an explanation of this phenomenon. So here is the surprising phenomenon. Surprisingly, a new study has revealed that shortly after a heavy rainfall, pollution levels in Crystal Bay reach their highest levels. This occurs despite the fact that rainwater is almost totally pure, and one would therefore expect that it would dilute the polluted seawater. Yeah, this is perplexing. I'm told one fact, rainwater is totally pure. Okay, so if it's totally pure and it's falling into Crystal Bay, whatever the ambient level of pollution in Crystal Bay, shouldn't that get diluted? I would totally expect pollution levels in Crystal Bay to go down after a heavy rainfall, but it's telling me that it actually goes up. I'm super confused. Scott, help me out here. <laughs> I think you obviously correctly identify the, the paradox that we're trying to explain here. And I think it helps 
something I tell to our clients. It helps to phrase what the paradox is going into the answer choices. But you know, we need an answer that explains how pure rainwater makes something more polluted, not less. And to really just focus on that and to pick the first answer choice, because again, this is earlier on in the test, that really gives us a clear answer to that question. But I think the increase part is the important part. It's not just that it doesn't decrease it. They haven't been subtle about that. They give it to us even in the question that we're looking for an increase here. So I think as long as we can keep that in mind, we should be able to not only find the right answer, but also hopefully find it fairly efficiently. Great. Yeah. So this one, analytics seems to be pretty split. None of the answers scream trap. So let's just go through them one by one. Here, I'll read A first. Okay, so A says, compared to the total amount of polluted seawater, the amount of rainwater that falls into Crystal Bay is negligible. This is a poor answer because, again, as we were just talking about, what we're looking for is an answer that explains why the pollution increases, not why it doesn't decrease. So this would conceivably, the, the sort of version of this that we would need in order to make this the right answer choice would be if the paradox we were asked to resolve is why doesn't the rainwater reduce the level of pollution? And that this would be a decent answer, but, but it doesn't give any explanation for why it actually increases instead. Yeah. See, you can really tease out what the test writers think is trappy by looking at how they design wrong answers. Scott, you already mentioned one of the things you always tell your students is to make sure you really understand what's perplexing, what is puzzling. Because if you don't have your finger on what's truly puzzling, A might be attractive. If you thought what was puzzling is that, you know, rainwater is totally pure. So after heavy rainfall, how come pollution levels don't decrease? Then A is like a good answer. A is like, you, you know why? Because just there's just not enough rainfall. The volume, it doesn't even compare. The Crystal Bay has huge, massive volumes of water. And you're talking about effectively a couple of drops of pure rainwater. Why would you expect it to decrease? A will be a great answer. But see, but that's not the phenomenon we're trying to explain. We're trying to explain why it increases. <laughs> so A actually doesn't explain it at all. If it's just so little that has no effect, then it shouldn't have effect either way. So good. So good. Okay, let's keep going here. The next answer is B, of course. And it says, most of the rainwater that eventually reaches Crystal Bay falls on pesticide-treated fields before being carried into the bay. And of course, this is our right answer. And this should jump out at you if you're looking for how is rainwater going to bring pollution into the bay? Oh, well, if it goes through pesticide treated fields on the way, and of course, it presupposes that you recognize that pesticide would be a pollution. But if your pure rainwater is going through these fields of pollution on the way to the bay, oh, well, it makes perfect sense why that would lead to an increase in pollution in the bay. We mark B, we move on. You're speaking from personal experience, you would just be so confident that it's B, right? Yes, because I mean, ultimately it does what we want to hear. It gives us a clear explanation for why there is an increase. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I actually think we talk about like we use the language cookie cutter. We say repetitive. We say recurring. We say reincarnated. Typically, when we say that, we mean in four. We mean in like the logical form of the question. But here, I think this is even in substance. I recall previous LR questions talking exactly about how rainwater gets polluted because it doesn't fall directly. I mean, some of it obviously falls directly into the bay, but a lot of it runs into the bay after falling onto other surfaces. And so it picks up whatever is on that surface and it brings it into the bay. I distinctly recall at least one other LR question that's, that's like substantively about the same causal chain, causal phenomenon. And I think you're right. And what I recollected, but wasn't able to find the clear example of, so maybe we'll be able to find it later. I think it was talking about like trash being washed into a body of water or something like that, which kind of reminds me of what D almost says, but doesn't quite say. 
Ah, D, yes, yes. Okay, actually, you know, let's do jump over to D. Answer choice D says, the single leading cause of pollution in Crystal Bay is beachgoers leaving behind their trash and debris, which then blows into the bay. And the problem here is ultimately that this doesn't really interact with our paradox at all. It gives a cause for the pollution, but it doesn't say anything about how rainwater would increase the amount of pollution. The trash is laying near the bay, the wind blows it into there. I think the only reason that you'd be tempted to select this is, and I think a certain mentality of test taker occasionally will try to make an answer choice like this better by (laughs) assuming things that it does not state, which is, well, if the trash is right there next to the bay, maybe the water could wash it into the bay. No. Don't make the answer choice better. That's not your job. You're only supposed to identify the correct one or a good one, not try to rehabilitate bad ones. I I totally agree. I I think it's a hard skill to learn because, you know, this idea of don't make an answer choice better, really seeing the answer for what it is. If we scrutinize that concept a bit more, what we'll find is that it's actually the skill of knowing when to make warranted versus unwarranted assumptions. That's the skill. Like if you look back at the correct answer, which is B, which says that the rainwater first falls on pesticide-treated fields and then washes into the bay. Okay, you cannot look at this answer with absolutely zero substantive knowledge about the world and recognize it as the correct answer. The reason is because you have to make a connection that pesticide is a kind of pollution. So what do we call that? If it's not explicitly stated on the surface of the text, we say it's an assumption. But then there are reasonable and warranted assumptions, and then there are unreasonable and unwarranted assumptions. It's not a binary thing. It's on a spectrum. It's just on a spectrum because it has to do with what's true in the real world versus what's not. So with answer choice B, you have to recognize that, hey, they didn't tell me, but pesticide is a kind of pollution. And that's the assumption that B requires. But you know what? That's okay because it's a warranted assumption. So B is still strong. Whereas with D, you really are in the business of editing D, improving it, making it better, because all it says is that the leading cause of pollution is trash, which blows into the bay. How does a heavy rainstorm interact with this fact? Silence. Nothing, right? Like there is no warranted assumption to make. Oh, I know. Heavy rainstorm interacts by, I don't know, creating more trash. The wind always, you know, heavy rainstorm always blows unidirectionally into the bay and not away from the bay. Like these are all completely unwarranted. Like, I don't know. You can come up with stories now. Like heavy rainstorm means people go to the beach less, right? Maybe so less trash. Oh, no, no, they go to the beach more, more trash. Well, the winds are crazy, so it blows the trash every which way. So actually, some of it gets scattered away from the bay. No, 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 it blows in one direction. And like, so this is how you can tell it's kind of arbitrary, like the assumptions that you're making. You can scrutinize your own assumptions to see if it's arbitrary. Whereas you can't play this game with pesticides, just, pesticides is just pollution. It's, it's meant to kill things. It's meant to kill like insects, though. So. Well, something I'll say to clients is that if you find yourselves having to tell a story to explain mm, why an yes. answer choice is right, then stop it. Yeah, that's a pretty good sign. You're in the assumption-making business now. Yeah, yeah. It's it's one thing to just, okay, pesticide-treated, I'm going to, that's a synonym with pollution. There's not a story there, but there, okay, I've got to bring entire facts into existence. But it is somewhat of a judgment call, and it's something that practice does make you better at. And that's why repetition is so key to really getting to the upper echelons of this test. Yeah, sometimes you don't even realize that that's what you're doing. You just automatically connected the idea of a pesticide as a subset of pollution, and you don't even recognize it. And that's great. You know, it's seamless. It's subconscious. You just, it's intuition. Exactly right. If you're able to do that, if you're able to make a lot of these things just intuitively happen in your head, then obviously that's going to be a huge benefit to this section of the test. It's a big benefit in the reading comprehension section as well. But it's also something that you need to just make sure that you occasionally analyze. That's a dial that can certainly be turned too high or too low. And getting 
getting used to finding, okay, what's the threshold for warranted assumptions on the LSAT is something that takes a little bit of calibration. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. I mean, that calibration also happens when you get questions wrong. Let's say you look at a right answer choice and you're like, hmm, but this answer choice, it requires assuming X is Y or X is a subset of Y or X is a superset of Y or whatever, right? And you're like, so that can't be right. Let me eliminate it. And then during your blind review, you have the same thought. You still eliminate it. But then you ultimately find out that wasn't the right answer. That's when calibration happens. You're like, oh, I just miscalibrated. So according to the test writers, they think X is a subset of Y or whatever it is. And then you have to ask yourself, why is that? Is that truly unwarranted or is it because it actually is just true? And always the answer will be, it is just true. Because by the time these questions reach us, they've already been through rounds of redaction. You know, test writers do make mistakes and they redact questions as a consequence, right? But by the time they make it to us, it's already gone through the, more or less gone through those rounds. That's how you start to calibrate, both with the wrong answers and with the right answers that you didn't select. Absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to the next question, which is question 13. And this is a necessary assumption question. The question stem here says, which one of the following is an assumption the psychotherapist's argument requires? Right, requires, so necessary. Here's the psychotherapist's argument. The troubles from which a patient seeks relief through psychotherapy do not have purely internal causes. Rather, those troubles result in part from the patient's relationship with other people. Hence, to help the patient heal, the psychotherapist must focus on the need for positive change in those relationships. All right, so that's the argument. To break down the stimulus, the first sentence states that troubles that patients experience have both internal and external causes. And then the second sentence says, in order to help heal those patients, therapists must address the relationships or the external part of it. So in other words, just dealing with the internal is not going to do it. You have to address the external. With a necessary assumption question, there's going to be some sort of gap between those two statements that hopefully one of our answer choices, well, definitely one of our answer choices is going to help fill that gap and explain why that would be the case. Because certainly we can imagine the opposite being true. We could imagine that you have internal external causes, but maybe all of the external problems with someone's relationship is just caused by them internally being a jerk. And if we can just fix them being a jerk, then that would actually fix their relationship. But in the world of this question, that's not the case. And we want to find some reason for it. Yeah, this is in some ways kind of flipping on its head. The same causal concepts we talked about in question three with the myopia and corrective lenses. Like in that question, this is why I think like the logic of causation is so much messier than the logic of sufficiency, necessity, sets and subsets, formal logic, in other words, right? Formal logic is so much cleaner. There's just these rules. You just, you just got to know the rules. You start playing with them. You get used to the rules. Everything just kind of falls out like math. You know, it really is like everything must be true or can be, could be true. Whereas causation, is just so much messier because in the earlier question, what was the causal principle, as it were, you know, that we examined? The causal principle was that, hey, you know what? Some problems, you don't need to figure out what the cause is. You can just figure, you can solve it anyway. Myopia, right? Now we know, oh, it's the genes that encode these proteins that end up with your lens gets a little too thick, right? Or a little too thin or whatever it is, right? Or misshapen, right? Okay, we didn't know any of that, but we did know it has something to do with how light passes through your eyes and hits your retina. So we can just put a filter in front of it, glasses, you know, contact lens, whatever. And that quote unquote fixes the problem. Even though we didn't know what the cause was, we quote unquote fixed, and I put it in quotes because it really depends on what you mean when you say the problem. And what you mean by fixing. Right, right? what you like, mean by fixing, you exactly. Know, we didn't actually fix the person's vision, but we, exactly. you know, we, we did well enough. 
<laughs> we we didn't change the physical structure of the eyeball, right? We didn't. Your lens, if it's too thick, it's still too thick. What we did was we just added another distortion layer in front of it to make it so that the light actually focuses correctly. So we fixed the problem in the sense of like if you identify the problem as, oh, my vision is blurry. Okay, well, we fixed that. If you identify the problem as the physical thickness of the lens, we didn't fix that. This is why you start examining closer. Once you start getting more specific about what the phenomenon is, then like these causal principles start to make a little more sense. How come in one situation, you don't have to identify the cause, yet you can still address the issue? It's because you're kind of actually addressing a different issue, right? You, you didn't address, if you wanted to fix the thickness, I don't know, you could start with LASIK, you actually just cut away some parts of your lens. But even there, you can still say, this is not really fixing the same problem, right? You're just ever approximating because it'll leave behind scarring. Maybe it'll leave behind scarring, but it's not the same as gene therapy. If you do gene therapy, which I don't think is within our technological capabilities as of yet, but if, you know, one day, probably, almost certainly it will be, then you've really fixed the problem. Well-defined, mapped on exactly to what you originally meant by the problem. Here, it's in this question, it takes that principle. It's like, actually, I think we do need to know the cause to fix the problem. Because the psychotherapist says, here's the problem. The problem is that patients have these troubles. Very ambiguous what these troubles are. Just whatever troubles patients seek relief from. Maybe it's social anxiety, maybe it's problem with self-esteem. We're not sure, but these are troubles that patients have. They seek relief from psychotherapy. And the psychotherapist tells us there are at least two categories of causes. One is internal, and she does say they're not purely internal. Causes don't completely explain all of it because they're not purely internal. And then she also tells us that troubles result in part, again, this is causal language telling us this is just a causal component, that troubles result in part from patients' relationship with other people. So that's external. So there are at least two internal causes and external causes. And with external causes as a class of causes, we get a specific example of that relationship with other people. So those two causes contribute to these troubles. That's the premise. From that premise, if you wanted to apply that causal principle from question three, you might say like, ah, but who cares? You know, who cares about what the causes are? I just want to help them fix the troubles. I can just give them medication and that'll fix the troubles. So there, that would be applying that causal principle. But here, forget that because that's not the argument the psychotherapist wants to make. The argument the psychotherapist wants to make, and because this is an NA question, we have to help this argument out. The argument that she wants to make is that, see, I've identified this external partial cause. So if you want to fix the problem, if you want to help patient, you must focus on the need for positive change in those relationships with other people. And now this is a long detour, but back to what you were saying earlier, Scott, there is definitely a gap in this argument. And the gap in this argument is precisely that the therapist has already identified another potential route to the solution. She already told us in the premise, you have internal causes and you have external causes. And then she says, oh, so to solve the problem, you must focus on the second thing, the second cause, the external cause. Naturally, we wonder why. Why not you identify two causes? Why can't we just focus on the internal cause? Or even, we might even say, why can't we just ignore all the causes together and just focus on the problem? Couldn't there be some other way to solve the problem without referencing what the causes are? So those are the two sort of categories of questions that are looming. Why can't we just focus on the internal causes? And why can't we just ignore all causes altogether and just directly address the problem through some other method? So then, of course, we have to find an assumption that this argument requires, which means that we have to find an answer choice that somehow talks about external relationships necessity. Why are external relationships necessary to fixing this issue? According to analytics, C and D are the two popular answers. So here, let's, I'll just read out C and then I'll read out D. C says, those psychotherapy patients who change their relationships with other people will thereby find relief from at least some of their troubles. And D says, no psychotherapist can help a patient heal solely by addressing the internal causes of the patient's troubles. 
Yeah, and a couple of things stand out to me about C that there's luckily on a lot of these questions, there are multiple different things that can help you identify either a right or a wrong answer. And there are a couple of standout things in C that immediately were what caught my attention my first time through this one. The first is that it switches the agent from the actual stimulus. The stimulus talks about the psychotherapist doing the changing, but suddenly we're talking about the psychotherapy patients changing their relationships with other people, which that doesn't really fit with the argument that we have. And it doesn't seem like the sort of, to refer to the previous question, it doesn't seem like the sort of warranted assumption that we should just allow to change. Everything in the previous was about what the psychotherapist must do, and now suddenly we're talking about what patients must do. Then it just talks about changing their relationships. But the original argument was talking about not just any sort of change, but positive change. So those two things immediately just immediately make me suspicious of this answer choice. It makes me, there are things in here that don't clearly cleave into that original stimulus. And so are a reason that I think you can identify this one's wrong. There's also a trickier issue, which is that despite all of the kind of weak statements that it, it puts in here, that it's ultimately trying to provide some sort of guarantee of sufficient which is not really what this argument needs. But again, we're still in the first 15 questions here. We want to find the easiest way to identify why this would be bad. And I think the agency shift and the ambiguous nature of that change together make me think that, again, I feel like I'd have to tell a story to make this answer a good answer just based on those two things alone. Yeah, I think that's that's really good. A relatively quick way to identify what's problematic in C is what you said about just focusing on the subject of the sentence, right? If you look at the conclusion, it's psychotherapists. It's a conclusion about what psychotherapists must do to help patients heal. They must focus on positive change in those relationships, right? Whereas in C, you parse out the grammar and it's the subject's patients. What kind of patients? Psychotherapy patients. All psychotherapy patients? No, just the ones who change their relationship with other people. The subject in sentence C is about patients. This specific subset of patients, what happens to them? They thereby find relief. So that doesn't map on to the conclusion. And contrast that with D. What's the subject in D? Uh, the psychotherapist. Exactly. Which psychotherapist. Is what yeah, which is what you would expect. And D says, again, no psychotherapist can help a patient heal solely by addressing the internal causes of the patient's troubles. So we're talking about psychotherapists and we're talking about like, well, something about them. So D is the right answer. What makes D right? What makes it a required assumption? The kind of gold standard test to figure out if your necessary assumption question is right is to negate it and see if that negates your conclusion. So if we negate this, we would it'd be some version of some psychotherapist can help patients solely by addressing the internal cautions of the patient's troubles. And obviously, if, I mean, if that were true, then the conclusion cannot be true. If any psychotherapist could solve a patient's problems by solely addressing the internal causes, then ultimately the psychotherapist argument completely falls apart. So that means that this has to be an assumption of the argument. Right, right. And this is coherent with the breadcrumbs, the premises left. The premises, again, identified two causes, two at least causal components of the troubles, internal causes, external causes. And then just seemingly out of the blue, the author says, okay, well, then psychotherapists want to help solve problems. They must focus on the external causes. Wait, you just told me there are two causal components. Are you sure focusing on just the internal causes isn't enough? Because if it is, then your conclusion has absolutely no support at all. And that's what D is trying to prevent, or not even trying to. That's what D successfully precludes. No psychotherapist can help a patient heal solely by addressing the internal causes. That must be true. 
I think one other tricky part about this, and maybe one of the possible explanations for why there's so much confusion between C and D, is that there is such strong language in D compared with C, which for necessary assumption questions is normally not something you like to see. Normally with a necessary assumption question, we want to see relatively weak language. We want to see some instead of no. So this really is teasing out your ability to not just, okay, rule of thumb your way is a necessary assumption question, so I'm going to discard any absolute sounding or very strong sounding answers. And this is really teasing out, do you really understand what's going on in this question? And if not, it's the test authors have really designed this one to punish you pretty severely. Oh, absolutely. I think you just nailed it. I mean, answer choice C, the wrong answer, look at the language, right? Patients who blah, 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 will find relief from at least some of their troubles so weak. At least some. Come on, you got to give me that. That's got to be necessary. <laughs> At least some versus these like, listen, absolute. No psychotherapist can help a patient heal solely by addressing. All of your heuristics, all of your rule of thumb, your pattern recognition for necessary assumptions, you're just kind of trained up to look for the weak, weak sounding answers. I mean, I'm actually, I tend to tell students that if you want to crack 170, heuristics are not going to get you there. Rule of thumbs won't get you there because unless you really understand why, the rule of thumbs are patterns that are, what can I say, 80% true? 83% true? That right. sounds about right. <laughs> but like, if you want to crack the 170, you have to get through the curve breaker questions. And these curve breaker questions break your rules of thumb because rule of thumbs don't capture why they are what they are. There's a deeper explanation of why you see 83% of the time necessary assumption questions have weak sounding answers. But that 17% of the time necessary assumption questions have strong sounding answers. There is a coherent underlying reason and it has nothing to do with weakness or strongness or anything like that. I don't know. For those of you listening, it really, this is a personal thing. It depends on what you're trying to achieve. If you're trying to improve your score from like, say, 152 to a 163, that's an 11 point jump. That's a big jump. That'll greatly improve your odds of law school applications. You probably can just rely on the rule of thumb and just rule of your thumb your way through necessary assumption questions, knowing that if you do this, there will be a ceiling on what you can do because of questions like this one that are designed to, you know, to kind of like mess with you, mess with people who rely on. But you know what? That's okay. You could just be like, listen, that's fine. I know this. I know what the deal is. This is my informed decision to go into this. Is oh, that's fine. I just I won't get a question like this right. But you know what? I also won't waste a bunch of time. And because I'm I'm targeting a one's what did I say one sixty four or whatever. I have plenty of questions to miss. This could be one of the ones that I miss. So this is where like I, I have trouble giving out generic advice because there is no generic advice. It really depends on where you are, what you want to achieve. That informs what kind of strategy you need to adopt. Do you just blindly follow rule of thumb? That actually works for a lot of people. Or do you dig deeper and try to understand why? And that actually turns out to be required if you want to cross a certain threshold. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's why with a lot of the tutoring clients we take on that they kind of have to go through multiple stages sometimes if they're trying to make really big score jumps. If you're trying to go from a high 150s to a low 170s, there's probably a span in there where yes, acquiring some of these rules of thumb so that you can gain speed and get to the end of the section, that might be a necessary first step to your study. But as you continue on, you're going to have to learn to see beyond just those kind of simple heuristics. And yeah. I think also because the test authors have gotten better at sussing these out or, or yep. they've just gotten more aggressive at really so. punishing, you know, okay, well, we know the rules of thumb. We we can read the same curriculum you guys read. And so we, <laughs> we have, you know, as if they don't have subscriptions on the various things and, you know, are looking at the rules. Like, oh, well, hey, here's how we make yeah. curve breaker questions. Yeah. We see what yeah. the test prep companies tell you to do. And then right. we make questions that punish you. Yeah, totally great. Two things you said I really want to highlight. The first thing is that I think you're absolutely right. And this 
this is something that a lot of students find difficult. If you're trying to make a big jump, there are stages. You make that first jump requires a different set of strategies. And the second jump might actually require you to kind of unlearn or reevaluate those first set of strategies that got you to, to your first 10-point improvement. The next 10-point improvement, you know, you might have to unlearn some of that stuff. I think that's something that students maybe don't realize, but nonetheless, it's true. And the second point is, this is why I want to stress what is the fundamental explanation of why an answer is right versus an answer is wrong without appealing to these simple rules of thumb. And the reason there is because whatever the test writers want to do, they're not going to change logic. They're not going to change grammar. Those things are set in stone. So in that way, it's kind of like the theories that students are learning are insulated, are protected against the test writers figuring out how to engage in this arms race with test prep companies. Whereas if the theories that the test prep companies are teaching are these like, oh, pattern recognition, like rules of thumb stuff, well, that theory is not going to hold up very well over time, precisely because of LSAT will change. Ultimately, that's why, well, you can make some short-term and limited gains by just employing tricks on the LSAT. I mean, if, if all you want to do is improve your score five points and you don't have any tricks or strategies or you don't know how to time yourself on the test, hey, maybe you can just focus on those things and you can give yourself your kind of a short-term bump. But if you really want to make substantial change on this test, you're really going to have to increase your understanding of the core concepts. And there's not really a shortcut to that. No amount of tricks or rules of thumb really get there. You really have to understand logic on a deep and intrinsic level and not just understand it if I give myself enough time to think through it, diagram it out, but ultimately just kind of internalize to the point where it's second nature if you really want to get into low 170s or certainly a high 170 score. Yeah, for sure. All right, so the next one we have lined up is question 16. This is a must-be-true question. This is medium difficulty, a three-star, according to analytics. So must-be-true. Question stem says, if all the statements above are true, which one of the following statements must be true? So here is the stimulus. Let's see, it's got two sentences. If a belief is based on information from a reliable source, then it is reasonable to maintain that belief. Furthermore, some beliefs are based on information from a reliable source and yet are neither self-evident nor grounded in observable evidence. Gotta love categorical logic. When I read this, I feel a tension, a pull in my conscious attention. On the one hand, I want to focus on the form. On the other hand, I want to think about what the words mean. I think for must-be-true questions, generally, you don't really have to think about what the words mean. You can just focus on the formal relationships that are being established. What is a belief? To illustrate, what is a belief based on information from a reliable source? So I start to like, you know, try to make it tangible, right? This is a skill that is super helpful for a lot of questions. They often throw these abstract concepts, phrases at you. And to make it sticky, we practice translating, practice coming up with examples to make it tangible. And if you find that it's going to help you here, by all means, definitely do it. But for a lot of the sufficient assumption, must be true, parallel reasoning questions, you can get away with completely ignoring the substance and just focusing on the form. Yeah. And I think actually that would help particularly on this question. Because <laughs> yeah. th this one, it really invites you to want to make some assumptions about how these concepts are related. And I think the surest way to pick one of these wrong answers, which ultimately just on the form of it are not terribly tempting, but they can be tempting if you make some unwarranted assumptions about how the concepts of reasonableness, reliability, self-evidence, and grounded and observable evidence are related to each other. Yeah, that's really well said. I think to put it differently, Scott, I think you're saying if you you actually don't think about the meaning of these words and phrases, you end up perhaps unwittingly evading these traps 
that they're laying out. Yes. And I, I think especially with these sorts of, we can call them different things, but these kind of set and domain sort of questions or these categorical questions, really reducing each of these concepts to just a variable in my mind helps me immensely just to not fall for, because in some ways we want to make assumptions about what does it mean for something to be reasonable? Well, we pretty much anyone who's taking this test probably has some sort of vested idea about that. Right. You have right. some sort of philosophical position yeah. on that. Yeah. You, you have an axe to grind and this yeah. is inviting <laughs> you to take out your axe. You know, so <laughs> you, you need to put that away and just address what is the very bare bones that they are giving you in this question. Yeah. Okay, let's get down to the details here. With the first sentence, pretty clear if-then claim. If a belief is based on information from a reliable source, then it is reasonable to maintain that belief. How would you handle this? Because you just from my first reading of this, I can immediately say, okay, clearly this is categorical. There are sets here. So I'm going to be thinking about kind of boxes and boxes or circles and circles. So I immediately interpret this as it's telling me that beliefs based on information from reliable sources belongs in the box of reasonable. Right, right. So I'm thinking, so in, in circles, subset, superset, small circle, big circle. Yes. Right? So the sufficient condition is the small circle, the subset. So if actually one other thing we can do is if you recognize that both sentences are telling us the subject of everything here is belief, you can kick that idea up into the domain. Everything here is talking about belief. That's just one less word we have to deal with. So now let's just deal with the properties of the belief. So the first property, the sufficient, is based on information from a reliable source. That's the small circle completely subsumed by reasonable to maintain, larger circle. The second sentence says, Furthermore, some beliefs are based on information from a reliable source. So there you have to recognize that's the same set that we just talked about. That's a small circle set, belief based on information from a reliable source. But here, the quantifier is some. It's not telling us, unlike the first sentence, where it's a sufficiency necessity, it's a if this, then this, right? Complete subsumption of sets into bigger or smaller sets. Here, the quantifier is some, meaning we're just going to talk about an intersection of this circle, the small circle of belief based on information from a source. It's saying some beliefs, based on information from a reliable source, and yet are something something. Some beliefs, based on information from a reliable source, are based on information and are something else. Okay, so that means we're looking at intersections. So that first small circle completely goes into that a larger circle of reasonable to maintain. But now in the second sentence, we're going back to that first small circle and we're saying, hey, the small circle has an intersection. Intersection with this other thing, which I haven't described yet, but it's this other circle. So what is this other circle? We can investigate the details in the sentence. But I don't want to do that just yet because I want you to maintain in your mind this rather simple, as of now, rather simple premise chain which just goes from this unnamed set that intersects in a some manner with information from a reliable source, and then it chains up from information from a reliable source completely over to reasonable to maintain. So in other words, we're looking at A, some arrow, B, all arrow, C. That's just one of the most commonly recurring valid argument forms you encounter in logical reasoning. That unnamed set is A. That has an intersection with B, a sum intersection with B, which is what we're calling information from a reliable source. And this information from a reliable source set is completely subsumed under, or in other words, is a sufficient condition for this big set C, reasonable to maintain the belief. So having it set up this way reveals what the correct inference must be true inference is, which is A sum C. A sum B, all Bs are Cs, must be true that some A's are C's. And so let's fill in the A and the C. The A, again, is that set that I haven't, I haven't described it, but whatever it is, you know, it is. And then the C is, of course, reasonable to maintain that belief. 
So that's the strip. Like I stripped away. I'm intentionally not naming the A set because a lot of the, this is what makes this question harder than what, what it otherwise would be because they layered on some complications. The A set is this, not self-evident and not grounded in observable evidence. So again, you see how it's really helpful to, this is what you said earlier, Scott, not to think about the meaning of these words. <laughs> just, just think about the form. Because once you start thinking about these, the meaning of these words, you, you get really confused. I think even thinking of forms is kind of confusing, but it's certainly less confusing than thinking about the names. So again, the A set is not self-evident and not grounded in observable evidence. So if that's the A set, well, what is A sum C? That means there are some beliefs that are not self-evident and not grounded in observable evidence and reasonable to maintain that belief. That's the inference. So Scott, have a look at answer choice E and if you could read it out for us. Among reasonable beliefs that are not self-evident, there are some beliefs that are not grounded in observable evidence. So this is the right answer, but it's not ordered in the way that I ordered it. The way I said it was, there are beliefs that are not self-evident and not grounded in observable evidence and are reasonable to maintain. Now, what did you say? That among reasonable beliefs that are not self-evident, there are some beliefs that are not grounded in observable evidence. <laughs> yeah, so what's happening here in E is that they're talking about an intersection between three different sets. We just kind of collapse the intersection between two of them into this letter A. Because if you look at A, what is A? A is just not self-evident and not grounded in observable evidence. I mean, you could call that intersection A, or you can be like, actually, isn't this just two distinct sets that partially overlap and we're looking at just the overlap? Yeah, it is. Both ways of viewing it is the same. We're just saying these two sets overlap here. Look at the overlap. This overlap overlaps with some other thing, which is reasonable to maintain. So that's the triple intersection. You're looking at the triple intersection, right? It's like saying cats that are fluffy and are domestic and are nice. It doesn't matter which order you describe. You can say among domestic cats, some are nice and fluffy. You can say among nice cats, there are domestic ones that are fluffy. It's all the same. You're just talking about a triple intersection. Anyway, really tough, tough question with the logical manipulations. Absolutely. And I think this is a question where, in some ways, eliminating the wrong answers, because a lot of these have pretty obvious tells, can help you more quickly get to that right one. I totally agree. Let's definitely look at one wrong answer, C, because it's the most popular wrong answer. And C says, all reasonable beliefs for which a person has no observable evidence are based on information from a reliable source. And ultimately, I'm going to discount this for similar reasons that I would discount A, B, and C. It's implying something that is not stated in the stimulus, information about the relationship between reasonable beliefs and observable evidence. And we are not given any clear information about the relationship between those two concepts. And as a result, we can't really make a determination about that C must be true. It could potentially be true, but we're not given enough information to conclude that it must be. Yeah, I think it's just far easier to trace what's happening here if you're, if you're able to map this out and like kind of see it in front of you because these relationships are a little bit more stable if you put them on paper and they don't move around or disappear versus you're trying to hold it in your mind. It's like, how good is your short-term memory? I think these sort of categorical or domain-based questions are really ones that lend themselves well to diagramming either through doing it and reducing it to conditional statements and variables or even just depicting them as interlocking circles and Venn diagrams. But, you know, if you struggle with these sorts of questions, if they're not intuitive to you, then definitely write them out on a corner of your scratch paper. Absolutely. And both. When you're reviewing, do both. Do both the visual sets, subsets, circles intersecting and circles getting subsumed. Language, use that language to represent 
represent what's happening and also use the language of some arrows and conditional arrows and because it helps you create a map between the two, right? Ultimately, you know, like we said in the core curriculum, these are just different ways of expressing these logical ideas. You can use English, you can use you can use the language of Venn diagrams, you can use the language of some arrows and all arrows. Whatever language you use, you're talking about the same fundamental ideas and it's just important for you to be fluent in the language to access those ideas. Good exercise in formal logic, question 16. Okay, last question we're going to do today is question 21. This is another necessary assumption question. It says, which one of the following is an assumption required by the professor's argument? So the professor here says, many scientists hypothesize that there is an invisible light-absorbing medium in outer space. In support, they argue that the medium's existence would explain the low visibility of other star systems from Earth. But there is actually no reason to believe that the hypothesis is correct. Since the low visibility in question is already completely explained by the general theory of relativity. So I think the first thing we're going to do here is, I think I'm going to actually use this in a class to illustrate the different indicator words and how they can really help you simplify what each sentence is doing in this argument. So right from the beginning, many scientists, anytime we're, we're suddenly talking about many scientists in an LR question, this is a clear context indicator. This sentence is going to be giving us some larger context, but it's not going to directly support the conclusion of the argument. Right. Many scientists, meaning not me necessarily, right? I'm a professor. I'm a scientist, not me, but I'm just, let me just report to you what those scientists over there, what they hypothesize. Yeah. And then starting in sentence three. So, and that goes on for two sentences, which again is, could definitely trip up some people. But then we have the sentence starting with the word, but, which is a good transition word that indicates that, okay, we had context before, but now we're going to talk about the main argument. So that's where if I were taking the test on paper, I'm definitely going to draw a line there, or even on the highlight version, it might help just to highlight that word but so that you know okay before this is context and now we're getting into the real thing but there is actually no reason to believe that the hypothesis is correct since i love since that is going to tell us that it's a pretty good indicator that anything that comes after the word since is going to be a premises and what was before it is going to be our conclusion so we get a lot of information from that one word and so this is a great demonstration if you just know okay that many scientists but and since just that has essentially unpacked this entire stimulus for you, which otherwise might be a little bit of a head scratcher if you're having to think about it in the normal terms of, okay, what supports what and what's, how do all of these things fit together? Yeah, totally. This is absolutely the first thing you have to do anytime you encounter a, a stimulus in LR is you have to figure out, is there a context? Not all stimuli have context, but this one does. This one has context, goes for two sentences. It's a specific kind of context that we call other people's argument. First sentence is other people's conclusion or hypothesis. Second sentence is other people's premise in support. They argue that the blah, 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 blah. And then, and the but switches over to the professor's argument. And there you have a sense word, which tells you the professor's argument is conclusion because of premise. So that's the first step. You have to do this every single time. Once you do this, then you can start thinking about how strong is his argument? What gaps are there? What assumptions are being made? How do I phrase these assumptions in a necessary manner, which is what this question stem is asking for? Okay, so let's do that. What is going on here? What is his argument? And what's, what's weak about it? I kind of rephrase this argument as there is no reason to believe that there is an invisible light-absorbing medium because low visibility to other systems is explained by the theory of relativity. So therefore, the theory is unnecessary. Yeah, good. Scott, what you just did was you took the context information and you shoved it in to the professor's conclusion, fleshing out what the professor meant by the hypothesis is correct. There's no reason to believe the hypothesis is correct. And what does that mean? How do we unpack that? And you say, there's no reason to believe that there's an invisible light absorbing medium 
in outer space. Yeah, because that's what the hypothesis is correct, is referencing. Absolutely. Being able to do that quickly, being able to do that more or less automatically. That's foundations, yeah. And I would say if that's not a skill that you have already, man, that would be something to sit down and drill. Find these referential and force yourself to kind of push the context into that reference so that you can construct that conclusion. Because ultimately, these are incredibly difficult to deal with, even if you can do that. That's just getting in the door to dealing with this question. If you can't identify the conclusion in kind of a succinct thought, then you're, you're going to have an almost impossible time of dealing with a necessary assumption question like this. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, so here they're saying there's no reason to believe that there's a light-absorbing medium in outer space. Why? Because this phenomenon is already explained by the theory of general relativity. So what is necessary, right? Scott, I think you can almost like anticipate what the right answer choice will say. You know, I'll be honest, on this one, I didn't. On a lot of necessary assumption questions, you know, I can immediately kind of ascertain the gap, but I actually went in a completely different direction on this. And see, now I wish I'd actually taken notes on that. <laughs> but, but I ultimately didn't actually identify the correct gap here. And so because the ultimate answer that we'll get to E, it relates these in kind of a different way. But Right. I think this is a good example of how, I mean, I experience this a lot. Often I'm like, oh, I think I can, I think I can anticipate what this is going to say, right? Like what I was thinking was there's no reason to believe that there's a light absorbing medium in outer space. Why? Because this phenomenon, low visibility is already explained by general theory of relativity. What I was anticipating was that in order for the hypothesis to be true, this phenomenon has to be as of yet unexplained. Yes. That was what I, what I thought the argument was setting me up for, right? Like, there's no reason to believe the light absorbing medium in outer space. Why? Because this phenomenon is already explained. So I was thinking, oh, well, then you're assuming that the phenomenon has to be as of yet unexplained in order for us to believe the hypothesis is correct. But it turned out that's not what answer choice E did. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> I actually I put it in my note here that this is the sort of answer that makes me want to stop prephrasing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, dadgummit, I went to all that effort to try to identify a gap. They went in a different direction. Yeah, I'm very cautious because you're kind of thinking like you're thinking you can anticipate what the test writers are going to say in like the span of a minute or a minute and a half, whereas the test writers have orders of magnitudes more time to design these questions and these tricky answers. It's a bit of hubris. But E says the general theory of relativity doesn't depend upon the hypothesis that there is an invisible light absorbing medium outer space. Yeah. And kudos to anyone who this was the prephrase that you immediately came up with. <laughs> yeah. You know, you must be Nostradamus or something. But yeah, I mean, certainly one fundamental assumption that this has to make is that the general theory of relativity does not presuppose the existence of this invisible light absorbing medium. Of course, that would, if we negate this, yes, this absolutely refutes the argument. If it's a, not a natural thing that you would assume that from the basis of the argument that that could even be a possibility. But yes. Right. As you read the argument, we all just naturally assume that these two hypotheses are different, right? On the one hand, you have general theory of relativity. On the other hand, you have this hypothesis of invisible light absorbing medium. In the way that the argument is phrased, it seems like these two are in conflict. Of course, one wouldn't encompass the other, right? Of course, the general theory of relativity wouldn't make reference to light absorbing medium hypothesis. But then you realize that's actually nowhere stated. We just assumed it. And we just assumed it. And of course, the argument just assumed it. Okay, that's fair game for necessary assumption. Anything that the argument just assumes is precisely what the necessary assumption is asking us to find. Just that sometimes these assumptions are so subtle, so like, duh, we think, so duh, so obvious that we wouldn't even think to have to say it. And then answer choice, he's like, well, let me, let me say it and see if you identify that this is so duh, so obvious, so... 
Well, and I think this is one where, because it's located in E, hopefully actually taking the test under the real environment, as you go through A, B, C, and D, you're able to quickly determine. One of the saving graces of this question is that A, B, C, and D are, are actually reasonably terrible. So hopefully you can quickly determine that they're terrible and thus not get fooled by them. And then by the time you get to E, it's almost a, oh, well, okay, fine. This surely must be the right answer because the things that came before it so manifestly were not. And if nothing else, if this question is still difficult, as, as it may well be, this is actually the hardest out of the set of five. And this is actually a four-star difficulty question. So to be more specific about how difficult this is, if you're scoring a 164 on this prep test, 91, you still only have a three and four chance of getting this question right. You still only have a 75% chance of getting this question right. So a quarter of 164 scorers still get this question wrong. So it is a hard question, but whatever you get out of this question, I think at minimum, get the thing that we first talked about out of this question, which is deconstructing the stimulus into its component pieces. Other people's conclusion, other people's premise, author's conclusion, author's premise, and identifying the indicator words that allow for that deconstruction. That's bare minimum to extract from this question. Absolutely. Well, Scott, that's the five questions we planned on for today's episode. I thoroughly enjoyed discussing this with you. Thanks very much for doing this, nerding out with me again on LR. And I am very much looking forward to the next time. Well, it's always a pleasure, JY. All right. I hope you found that helpful. If you want more in-depth analyses of these and all the other questions from PrepTest91, we've got full explanations both in video and text form on 7sage.com. If you're looking for more one-on-one help with a tutor, get in touch with us. We've got a great tutoring team, including Scott himself, and we'll do a free consultation so you can get a sense of whether tutoring will be a good fit for you. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.